those substances are engaging the individuals and their brains and their bodies in the most visceral human physical way possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Joining us today is an award-winning writer and speaker whose relentless curiosity has helped him identify unseen trends emerging in the world around us. His journalistic writings have been featured in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and Bloomberg, and have earned him the kudos of having real and lasting charm by the New York Times. His books include Save the Deli, The Tastemakers, the award-winning The Revenge of Analog, and the forthcoming book, The Future is Analog. His name is David Sachs, and he's here today to talk to us, amongst other things, about why a noisy, smelly, messy, beautiful, wonderful, textured, non-pixelated world is our real future. David, thanks for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. My pleasure. It's good to see you, dude. Um, so my first question for you today is... What did you have for lunch and what is it about lunch meetings that you love in particular? I did not have a lunch meeting today, but I did have a really good lunch. I made a okay. kind of corn chowder last night. Very simple. You know, strip the kernels off the corn. Um, <clears throat> then make sure you scrape with the back of the knife to get all the like juicy bits out. Put that in a pan. <laughs> oh, that's an with interesting some- technique. Yeah, no, that's that's the key. That's the the jus. Okay. Um, put that in a, a pot with some onions and garlic you softened in butter and oil, and then saute that. And then you could add whatever liquid you want. Add some white wine, a little bit of cream, you know, a little bit of seasoning, and just let that cook until it gets soft and delicious. Maybe puree a bit of it with a hand blender. Um, so I had the leftover of that, and that was yeah. It's like that essence of late fall, the last gasp of the sort of sweet rays of sun um, that here in Canada are going to go away for some time. For a long time. Lunch yeah. meetings. You know, I, I, I was actually thinking recently of writing a book about lunch meetings, like one of those short books in defense of them. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that really went by the wayside very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic, um, especially as people you know, began working from home. And yet I think there's something unique about the lunch meeting and beautiful. Like it is, it tends to be this like simultaneously decadent and yet incredibly productive space of time where in a relatively short period of time, there's this kind of mixture of interpersonal, interhuman connection and, um, and enjoyment and a sort of decadent, reality it's like you go for a real lunch meeting like in in a city somewhere and you know it's 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 a real like it's an event it's it, you know it's it's very different from the standard lunches which is like i had a bite of a leftover i had a little sandwich or i had a little like salad that i got in a clamshell that ate at my desk like a schmuck and it's like to go out for lunch is this incredible treat but i just also find because it's in the middle of the day because you tend to be you and one other person it's very intentional you know, you're not going out as couples. It's not part of a party. You're not out on the weekend. Like it, there's this joy to it. And I, I've, I've made so many great friendships with people and maintained so many great work relationships with say editors or other people that I've done work with, um, over the years. And, and so much of that has been based around lunch. I could go on about this for like the full hour of our conversation. <laughs> I have many different thoughts on it. Um, and so I'm, I am a firm proponent of the lunch meeting or just, you know, lunch in general as an event. 
I guess that's what makes you uh, a quintessentially great author is I've clearly had many, many lunch meetings in my life, but never taken um, a moment to reflect on the totality of the experience like you just communicated in, in well, a somewhat brief, but it could be quite extended form. Uh, and I appreciate that. Let's break it down for one hot second while we're, uh, while we're here. I mean, I actually recall our, we had a lunch, I don't know if it was a meeting, you had an idea about a sort of record listening bar that you want to open, which now I've noticed there's a number of them Japanese style. We were at Say What, the classic, the original craft beer bar in downtown Toronto uh, with another friend of you whose name completely eludes me. And Greco. Yeah. And, and it yep. is this, it really was this, it's like this confluence of like, let's catch up. I want to talk about your family and your kids. And you had just gotten, had a new kid because you've gotten remarried or something. And yet there was like this, this, you know, but I have this idea. It, it It's that seamlessness of it, which I think for a dinner meeting, for business is very different. Like the stakes are higher. Like a, you have a dinner meeting if you're cementing a deal or something, right? Like it's a real, there's like a, there's a, there's a weight to that. A breakfast meeting is very like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get this in before I do. And we're going to have a lot of coffee. So I'm going to have to poo in like 20 minutes. Um, fun fact. Uh, and Biology then, 101. Yeah. And then any other meeting is, you know, it's like a, it's like, you know, this is the time of the calendar where we're going to talk, you know, maybe we'll talk in person. We might probably talk on the phone or something. And so lunch is, it's like this respite that your whole day is kind of built around that lunch meeting. Much to be said about it. Again, we can do a separate episode on that if you want. All right. Well, it's also like in, and, and this is a good segue, but, um, in the essence of a lunch meeting, it is probably the, the meal in in which hands can be used most freely and politely, right? Ooh. Like a sandwich, right? Yes. And, you know, back in my dating days and, and uh, in case uh, Stephanie, you're listening to this, I promise I was never married before. I wasn't getting remarried. Oh, it was my sorry. first marriage, but, uh, um, um, <laughs> back in my dating days, I used to always make it a point to like go somewhere where you know, it wasn't classy where you had to use your hands or get messy or anything along those lines because it's a great equalizing factor. Such and a good I, test. And I used to do that for, for lunch meetings as, you know, especially when I felt like I was in, with someone who maybe have a higher echelon to try and create that normalizing factor. It, uh, it's a good reminder uh, of all that. Speaking of eating with your hands and as what I would say is a, a bit of a foil to the somewhat uh, gourmet dinner and leftover lunch you had today, your first book was about delis. It was called Save the Deli. And just by way of background, one of the best moments of my adult life actually occurred at Sarge's Deli uh, on 3rd Avenue in Manhattan. Have you ever been to Sarge's? Yes. Okay. Uh, it was about three or four in the morning after uh, quite a night out when the oldest looking man I've ever seen who was using a walker came up to our table wearing a hat that said, uh, and, and uh, insensitive, you know, probably inappropriate joke warning here, but his hat said, 96 is the new 69. Uh, and he started making lewd in a 1950s kind of way jokes to the couple of women who were at our table uh, before pointing to a picture on the wall and revealing that he was in fact uh, the, the now late, uh, but then great Professor Irwin Corey, a comedian that Lenny Bruce described as one of the most brilliant comedians of all time. That and growing up Jewish cemented uh, my love of corned beef on rye. 
But what's your story? What inspired you to write a book about the dying art of the deli? Uh, you know, this it, it began as a paper I wrote in university. And it was like, you could pick any topic in this class on Jewish sociology, which I took because like most classes I took, it fit into my schedule. So I would have Fridays off to go skiing. And um, it was a relatively straightforward A. <laughs> terrible, terrible ambitions. Um but, you know, I'd always grown up going to delis with my family uh, here in Montreal, and I noticed that many of them were, you know, closing and disappearing. And so I wanted to find out why. And that brought me back a couple of years later to write that book, which was my first. And, you know, of J Jewish people of a certain age, pretty much the only book I've ever written. Like, I could sell a million copies of my next book, and they'll still be like, you're the guy who wrote the deli book. That's it. That's all I got. Put it in my tombstone. Just ship it out right there now. You go. That's it. That's all you need. <laughs> it will last as as long as the corned beef that uh, you consume, probably in the in the writing of that book. Um, I haven't had a chance actually to read Save the Deli, so so tell us what you discovered in in that. And uh, even though this has nothing to do with psychedelic experiences, you know what I and and looping it all back to psychedelics in this podcast is like. I think what psychedelics open to us is a nature of experience that uh, yeah. we often forget. Um, and and you're such a a great and articulate writer, journalist, these are the words I'm looking for, of reminding us of these experiences that make mm -hmm. the human experience so human. So so indulge me in, in what you found in the in the discovery of uh in the rediscovery of the deli. Yes. Opening up the doors of cholesterol. Uh, and a million other bad jokes based on the one time I read um, How to Change Your Mind. It's, I could go on about this for, for some period of time. I mean, I think the, you know, let, let's, 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 you know, compare it to the psychedelic experience. I mean, the thing about a Jewish delicatessen, especially for someone who isn't of that culture and didn't grow up in it, is like a psychedelic experience. It allows you very quickly and instantaneously within walking into a place like Sarge's Delicatessen or many of the other Jewish delis that are around this fair world to completely immerse yourself in a full sensory experience of what that culture is, right? Like if you're not someone who's grown up Jewish or religious, you're not going to go to a religious service. Maybe you'll go to your friend's son's bar mitzvah or, or a wedding, but you're not really going to understand what they're saying. They're speaking in a foreign tongue. Um, you know, there's all sorts of rituals. It's not, you're not going to be like, oh, I get it now. Um, and, and so the Jewish deli is this experience where anyone can walk in and instantly kind of get immersed and, and their brain lit up by what the non-religious, um, non, you know, secular, cultural, but kind of historical and yet new Jewish experiences. It smells like only Jewish deli can. It it tastes like it, but also the sounds, the way people will come to your table and kibitz and joke. These are the types of things that you would only have if you grew up in a community where people had those same social characteristics. And I mean, it's no different from going to a dim sum restaurant if you haven't grown up in sort of Cantonese culture or a dosa restaurant if you're from sort of South Indian culture. It has its own particular immersion into the milieu. And it, it is, in a way, a trip, right? You you see in New York City, a tourist go into Katz's from you know Japan for the first time. And it's like, whoosh, they are taken into this experience. The sounds, the smells, the sights, the way people are talking, the lingo. It's it's not just a meal. It's it's like an amusement park ride 
that um, we didn't get to take our children on because they were too young when we went to Canada's Wonderland. Uh, and we just wasted a hundred dollars that day on, you know, <laughs> ski ball or whatever. So <laughs> in that way it is, it is this immersive experience, which I think are the experiences that are the ones that mean the most. And this brings us back to lunch and the sort of broader topic of analog that I'm talking about, which is like, we can try to replicate these things. We can try to simulate these things, but nothing beats that real thing. Nothing equates it. Nothing can get to it. The best you can hope to do with some VR simulation is like to replicate the feeling of going into cats's, but it's not going to be the real thing. You, you likened it very deftly to a, a trip, a psychedelic experience, describing it as a, as a full sensory experience, which certainly going into a deli or, you know, into a dim sum place or a dosa house can do. But the other nature of psychedelic experiences is it often reveals something about yourself. So, um, what do you think? The Jewish delicatessen experience reveals about Jewish culture. I I think it reveals the personality of it, right? Like, you know, Jewish law and scripture is very well codified. It's it's the whole nature of it. It's like, it's all in a book. It's all in the laws. It's all there. You know, that here are the commandments. Here are all the, you know, 613 other laws you have to follow. It's very sort of straightforward. The rituals of prescribing how you dress if you're religious and how you do these sorts of other things. But when you get to the question of Jewish culture, it's a, it's a very amorphous thing. One is because it's a very diverse group of people because they were, you know, the Jewish people have lived all over the world and brought on various parts of their culture from Eastern Europe to the Mediterranean to now various, you know, parts in the Americas and so on. And yet you go into a Jewish deli and it's like, it is, it isn't a diner. It is different than a diner. It is different than a dim sum restaurant. It has its own specific culture. And that culture is this sort of untouched, unspoken thing. You can't replicate it. You can't create it. It comes from sort of an immersion in it, a history of that. And all of that unpacks in the sort of psychological, social history that that built was built around that. And that was built around. And so it's it's revealing in that way. And, and it's that, that, that it got back to that trip thing where like you come out of a place like Sarge's or, you know, Langer's in Los Angeles. And you're like, wow, that was, that was a really unique experience. Like the sandwich was great, but like the totality of all that adds up to something and I can't quite put my finger on it. And that thing is its inherent Jewishness. It's characteristic. That has nothing to do with religion and it has nothing to do with Israel and has nothing to do with the sort of ethnicity, but it's like the cultural history and legacy that all those things relate back to, you know, encapsulated in a lunch that you're having to bring it back to lunch. No, but it it is an interesting exercise and I don't profess to have the answer, but something in that experience actually reveals elements of what Jewish culture has valued and, and to some extent selected for, you know, I was having a conversation with someone and they were speaking, he he spent a lot of time in uh, Hong Kong uh, working as, as a banker in Hong Kong. And he made some comments about, you know, Hong Kong and and Chinese culture and certain things that got valued. And he even suggested, and and I'm not in any way advocating that this is necessarily true. I have no idea, but he said, you can actually start to see it in, in genetic expression that certain traits you know, in Chinese culture got selected, not saying like it's part of who it is to be Chinese or, or Asian, but, um, 
because those cultural traits got valued at some point, you see kind of natural selection starting to express in the genetics. You can almost see a genetic connection to it. I don't know if there's any truth to it, but there is definitely, I think, truth in, in, in all of these experiences as and identifying the cultural values of, of each culture and, and what we preference, what, what we value, what we think is worthwhile and, and continue to uh, propagate through our culture and the sandwiches. And, and I remember going to Vegas and going to the remake, I think of the stagecoach they have at one of the Vegas casinos now and the size of the goddamn corned beef sandwiches. If you want ego death, you will definitely experience some kind of death getting through one of those sandwiches. Uh, has the recent discussion about ultra processed foods, um, being effectively poisoned, uh, changed your perspective on, on your love of the deli at all, or, is it just one of those things we accept as uh, as the good with the bad? You know, it's interesting uh, to bring this back to the central theme of this podcast. And anyone who started a psychedelic company in the past ten years is the Michael Pollan effect. I, I with my book club, recently reread Omnivore's Dilemma, which I first read back in two thousand and seven when it came out. When I was researching this deli book, and I was driving around the United States and, and North America, visiting you know two hundred something delis. Um, over the course of a couple of months. And it had changed my perception then. Um, and really, you know, yes, the environmental, the social impacts, and so on, the economic impacts, but you, you really saw it in taste. Like one of the reasons that the deli had dissipated and was in decline was that so much of it had become sort of turnkey and industrialized that, you know, people got their meat from four different suppliers. Um, and so everything kind of tasted the same, especially in a region, right? You can go to a, four delis in New York and they all use the same corned beef and pastrami and the same rye. So what is the difference? And the same mustard, right? What is the difference between them? Uh, and you were starting to see a growth of a new generation of delis that were opening up around the country and even around the world um, when the book was coming out and, and, and in the decade, like 13 years since, um, that were trying to recreate that to trying to source better products, trying to make their own products, make their own meats and bake their own breads from scratch. Um, and we're having, you know, a, a good degree of success with that. You know, some of those restaurants survived. Some of those restaurants have fallen prey to the reasons why many restaurants close, you know, rents, costs, staffing, pandemics, recessions, whatnot. Um, but it, 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 you know, was very foremost in my mind at that time. This is for Toronto listeners really only. Did you follow the uh, boom, bust, and echo of the Komplanskis um, deli in Toronto and, and what happened there? Were you following yeah. that pretty closely? Yeah. Uh, what did happen there, by the way? I mean, you know? again, it's, you know, I, I think people can say, oh, this place closed and it's the end of delis. It's like, you know, it's the restaurant business. <laughs> and and this is yeah. this is a city where it's one of the hardest cities in the world to operate the restaurant business. You know, we were in Montreal recently, my wife and I, and walking around and we're like, hey, remember that bar we went to in university 20 years ago? It's still there. Why aren't they there in Toronto? Because the rent doubles every two years. <laughs> yeah. What do you expect? Right? It's, you know, so much of that's down to, to just straight up economics. So it's unfortunate because there are in a large city, a city with a, you know, deep culinary love. Fabulous restaurant city, fabulous eating town and, and, and a city with a large Jewish community there. There are very few Jewish delis, but there are new ones that have opened up and continue to open up and are seeing success. I've heard good things about Dave's Deli, Sumalicious in the very corner of the city, which is run by a Sri Lankan Muslim family who, you know, worked at Schwartz's in Montreal is fabulous, incredible. 
Um, and so, you know, it keeps going and growing and evolving. Um, and that gives me hope and it takes on its own flavor and character. Very fair. And this is my last comment on delis, but, uh, only in Toronto could you have a place that was called Ginsburg and Wong, uh, yes. Ginsburg and Wong's, Classic. which was a combination of Jewish deli with Chinese food. What a, what a wonderful combination, which no longer exists. Although I did see at, um, uh, the Royal Winter Fair, there's like a stall of Ginsburg and Wong's, but, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if they just stole the name or not, but, uh, I was like, oh, that gives me hope. I'd love to see that come back. All right. You can tell I haven't had lunch today, so maybe that's why See? I'm a little bit more focused Lesson on the early one. conversation. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Thank you for helping promote um, my book that came out 13 years ago, Ron. This is great. <laughs> Whatever. We're, we're, we're uh, extending uh, royalties, and, and we are going to get to the juicy stuff now. So I'm not sure if you remember, uh, but you and I met for the first time a number of years ago at the Fireside Conference, which was held at Camp Walden, a pretty perfect place for a guy who likes to talk about the analog world to be talking about this stuff. I remember hearing your talk and absolutely relishing the somewhat contrarian perspective um, that you offered relative to what everyone was thinking about the coming digital world. What started you down this path of of you know really becoming a, I, I would say the poster boy for a a very healthy and robust analog world outside of what lives in, in pixels and bits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It was the beginning of October and it was absolutely freezing, um, very cold that first year. And I never went out to that, um, but we had a lot of great times. I gave that talk in front of a bonfire at the. That's right. Color comic unit, which is where I was at first a camper at that camp and then later as a counselor. Um, so wonderful. Lots of fun. We had a great time. You know, this fascination with what I later called the revenge of analog and now, you know, in the new book, The Future is Analog, let's just call it analog, uh, the sort of non-digital alternatives uh, to the things that we're told are kind of inevitable and, and where our destiny lies. Uh, it, it began with you know, I guess personal love and curiosity, right? Why 15 years ago at a time when, you know, iPods were sort of the standard, digital downloading was widespread and streaming had just begun services like Pandora. And, and I think Spotify launched in 2009. Why was I suddenly seeing record stores um, and vinyl records coming back. Why at a time when Amazon was in its rapid ascendancy and the Kindle and other sort of major ebook platforms, Kobo or the Nook, were coming out and they were promising to do for books what the iPod had done for and Napster had done for music, were independent bookstores reopening and growing and expanding? Why was everybody I know who was pitching their startup doing it with a iPhone in one hand and a paper moleskin journal in the other? What was going on? We, you know, we, we, the there was sort of two competing narratives. One was the standard narrative that everything was going to become digital, and this was the inevitability of Moore's law, and it was exponential increase. And in, you know, if if e-commerce is two percent this year, it's going to be. 5% next year, 10% the year after that, and you know, 30% in, in, in the end of the decade. So forget about opening a store. And then on the other hand, wow, like now there's 10 record stores around my house and another book independent bookstore opened up and they're actually their sales are growing and they're doing great and they're expanding. Why is everybody buying coloring books? What is what is going on here? 
that the narrative of the future is not so simple and straightforward. Why is this happening? There's something bigger than just these consumer products that I'm seeing. And that brought me deeper into investigating why that was happening. Why was vinyl growing? Why were bookstores growing? Why were you know paper products? What was what was the deeper value of these things that we already had alternative digital technologies for? Why were they growing? Why were they getting a new value? And what did this say about the world that we live in in a much bigger way about how we relate to digital technology and the analog, non-digital world that's still the majority of what matters in our lives, right? And what did you find in that exploration? Uh, I mean, I, I read the book when it first came out um, and, and I remember it, it kind of looked at, I think, three major trends, which was like uh, vinyl books. And I think photography was a piece of it as, as well. Uh, but I may be mis misremembering that. But uh, I've noticed recently, like my, my stepdaughter in the last couple of years bought a Polaroid, which seems pretty antithetical for a 17 year old to, to want in, in this day and age. But, but what, what did you find? What, what, what was, what, what, what was the answer to why is this happening? Well, I think your, your stepdaughter is the great example of this, right? Here's someone who has grown up Photog photographically only knowing digital cameras, right? Every photo that's been taken of her that she's taken in her life has been most likely through a digital camera, whether it was, you know, a point and click Canon or whatever, or over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, a, uh, a phone, a smartphone camera, right? And so why would someone like that who has access to these, you know, super powerful digital cameras that can you can share and edit and do everything you want and takes a, a much better picture than this expensive, cumbersome, you know, 50-year-old piece of film technology or more that sometimes turns out and sometimes doesn't. And each one costs a dollar, basically, if you're talking about the Fujifilm Instax or the Polaroid Impossible ones, like $2 a picture. Like, why would she use that? I thought of that when when our friend's daughter, Abby, who's now 15, or 14, she had a, her eighth birthday um, and she got an Instax camera. Like, why do you want this? She's like, oh, it's really cool because you take a picture and you only get what you get and you get to hold it to someone. It's different than your phone. It's different, right? It's not better. It's not, oh, I judge the pixels on um, you know, the the resolution and I find that this one is superior aesthetically. It's like, this experience is a different experience. It's a complementary experience to the digital one that I've been given and is just, you know, as normal as air in my life. Um, and I prefer it. Why are sales of paper books as strong or stronger than they were, despite the predictions that ebooks would overtake them? Ebooks are vastly less expensive. They're much easier to get. You tap, you have it. You don't have to go to some store. They don't weigh anything. You don't have to buy cases. You don't have to carry them when you're moving. Um, they don't cut your fingers. Like my kids are always like, I have a paper cut. It's like analog problems, man. You know, you don't have to cut down trees to make them. And yet 90% of readers read on paper. And that has remained consistent throughout. What is the value of this? Right? What is what is the value of it? The value of it is it is a different experience than reading on a tablet, even the best tablet or e-reader, right? It has physicality. It has that smell. It has that feel. Our bodies respond to it in a different way. Not everyone. There are people who prefer to read ebooks. 
Um, but the vast majority don't. Why is that? What is the reason? Because it offers a different experience, a complementary experience. And so that's what the analog does, right? Once there is a choice between an analog and a digital version of something, right? Once digital technology comes along, it's like, we can now offer you the choice of recording this through our software platform mm -hmm. or going into a studio and recording it. You have a clear choice of what it is. And, and you as a human being of free will and mind are able to make that choice. Okay. Which one makes sense for me? Right. Does this one make sense for me? You know, does this one, does this platform make sense for me? Does this platform not make sense for me? So recording your podcast, you know, in this way, it makes sense for you. It makes sense for me at this moment. But maybe if you're recording a huge podcast, maybe you think this thing got became the number one podcast, you'd say, I kind of want to be in studio with my guests so I can sit and talk to them. And it's worth it for me, even the extra cost and the hassle, because I'm going to get a better product or a better conversation out of it. Or maybe you believe that, maybe you don't, right? Um, and so so it it all comes down to the inherent experience of that. And for so long, we've assumed that the digital experience would ultimately be the superior experience because it would be cheaper or faster or more powerful or better. And time and again, we've- Or perfect, right? Or perfect, like your, right? your phone is frictionless, perfect. Just like frictionless. Yep. And time and again, we realize that actually what we're doing with those perfect experiences, we're sacrificing a lot of the things that we don't realize we get value of. Um, in my new book, The Future is Analog, which I'm just going to segue into talking about because that's why we're here. We're going to um, get there too, but yeah, we're all right. We're going to get there. But, but it, it, this is the sort of thing, like the realization that we had during the pandemic was that the perfect experiences of digital that were promised to us and kind of forced upon us out of necessity in you know the middle of 2020 were wildly insufficient in most aspects of our life, right? You know, if you can find me one person who is like, you know what? Digital school, virtual school, totally the way to go. Tried it. It's the best. Never putting my kids back in a classroom again. I would love to speak to that person. I would love to know who they are and what their deal is. Actually, one question before we hop into it. Um, so we talked about like sort of books and vinyl and photography. Do you see other, see this starting to percolate up through the lens of the revenge of analog, not necessarily the future's analogs, but through the revenge of like other instances of that, have there been other ones that have percolated up recently where you see things that had been cast aside as antiquated making a comeback or, or are those still the, the kind of primary? Those are the best known ones. I mean, there are other areas that people appoint to do in different examples, you know, certain companies bringing back catalogs, business cards, um, certain print products, for example, uh, things like concerts and live theater. You know, there was this idea that, you know, streaming would do away with all these things. And, and, you know, in the years leading up to the pandemic, Broadway had their best seasons ever, you know, concerts sold out all these, all these sorts of, again, thoroughly analog experiences, Shakespeare in the park, like lineups for Shakespeare outside in the rain. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think film books, records of the kind of glaring obvious examples also because those are the things that are so much more cumbersome and easily disrupted and non-essential um when it gets to talking about things like experiences rather than goods like schools or work or um the other life experiences that we 
we you know had to endure digitally during the pandemic it's that deeper conversation which is really what the new book is about it's less about the the physical goods and more about you know the places spaces and relationships i don't know if you've ever heard the the uh uh, Cologne or Cologne, um, concert by Keith Jarrett. Oh. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's, it's so magnificent. And, and the story behind it is, is wonderful, which is he went to this concert, the piano, which was totally out of tune. Right. And, uh, ended up having one of the, what seems probably the greatest musical performance of human existence on an out of tune piano where he couldn't use all the keys. Uh, and a lot of people look at that and point to the fact that friction, you know, actually aided in creativity and and there's so much depth to this world that we can experience if we just choose to put restrictions on what we're willing to explore whereas the digital unleashes total optionality and freedom uh the, the physical the analog uh puts parameters on that and and there's wondrous things that can come out of that with that thought i will flip to the the future is analog as you can probably tell I'm already a fan of your thinking, uh, but you had me hooked very early on uh, in in the new book with you know a Spaceballs reference of fuck even in the future nothing works, uh, and then you had this line about your experience at the beginning of COVID. You said, "quote We had six bedrooms, four televisions, a reliable internet connection, endless space outside, a great lake, woods and trails nearby, a closed golf course to walk on, plus a sauna and a hot tub." Go to a dictionary and look up the term white privilege. That's me in that house, and it fucking sucked. Uh, that was the ex- that experience was a catalyst for for the futures analog. Apologies from my to my mother in law whose cottage I'm referencing at that. We it was it was a great place to be. It was better than being in this small house. So, but yeah, it sucked. Totally resonated with me. My experience was was very similar. In that book, you go through seven instances where the future digital utopia that we were promised turned out to be significantly misleading or really should be looked at as maybe a complement to the analog world. And and I'd love to let's let's go through those um, you know, from top to bottom. So what what were the kind of seven frameworks where you looked at what we experienced during COVID, uh, which could have been totally disrupted through a digital future. And it turns out that, that, you know, that's probably not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did seven cause it really broke it down into the days of the week, um, which was just a narrative framing device my wife thought of. So compliments to her. Um, but you know, when you think back to that period of time, you know, late March, early April, 2020, as you're readjusting your life to conduct it, almost entirely online, you know, think about what the pundits were saying. You would hear on, you know, CNBC and, um, and Bloomberg and, and, you know, LinkedIn and other places from people who were in the business of, you know, creating or promoting digital technologies. This is it. This is the future. It's finally arrived. We fast forwarded, you know, 10 years and two weeks, and this is it. You know, the disruption that we've long preached has arrived and there's no going back. There's no going back to schools. Um, it's so much more efficient to teach every student in the world online. It's going to be customized and wonderful. There's no going back to the office. We don't need offices and commutes and those horrible office relations and the bad birthdays and the, the, you know, abusive relationships and power dynamics and, and, you know, cubicles and, and uncomfortable desks. We're done with stores, wasteful grocery stores and 
clothing shops and other sorts of retail outlets when everything could be delivered to you at the press of a button so fast, so efficiently, so much less expensive. Um, we're done with, you know, going out to theaters and sitting around, you, you know, you want to see Elton John, he's performing in his living room. So you can sit in your living room and watch it and it's free and it's wonderful. It's streaming. It's high definition. You can see every pore in his face. Um, you know, the future of cities is here and everything's going to be optimized. Uh, we're going to have smart cities and this is how we're going to live and everything's going to be delivered and it's going to be self-driving electric cars and, you know, powered by AI. The city is going to be this hyper-efficient machine instead of these, you know, kind of crusty, crazy, somewhat dangerous, somewhat chaotic places. Even our spirituality, our, our body, right? We're going to be optimizing for every aspect of it. You can do it online. You love to go to a gym. The gym is here now. Get on your Peloton and ride. And the best instructors are going to yell at you. And if you want to get in touch with your soul, pick a denomination, pick a religion. You know, your rabbi, your imam, your priest, your 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 shaman, um, your holotropic breathwork leader is there online on Zoom or whatever it is you want. We will deliver the psychedelics right to your door. Uh, and you can, you know, have whatever experience you want in this future. We are, we, this is it. We have arrived at the goal that we were sort of going to. And what we found very, very early on is how insufficient that was in pretty much every single aspect of our life. Was it more convenient for most people to work from home than, you know, drive or take a subway or a streetcar bike to an office? Yes. But was the nature of doing video meetings all day exhausting and gave people headaches and 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 you know made doing the work that they had to do more challenging in in many cases yes you know school the promise of virtual school is and and the promise of remote school is something that people have been talking about since edison developed film and radio you know, a hundred years ago you know the best lecturers in the world would deliver information directly to students without putting them in buildings and making them sit and, you know, it would be customized and it was an unmitigated disaster everywhere in the world. I mean, there may be a small number of students who benefited from it. Mostly those were students with severe social anxieties or who were on very extreme parts of the autism spectrum. For the most part, students did far worse learning. Their social lives fell apart. They were riddled with anxiety and they lost their sense of community, right? The idea that, you know, everything we wanted could be delivered to us. Yes, you could order whatever you wanted, but it got more expensive. It was frustrating. And when stores reopened, you know, even for brief periods of socially distant shopping, they were packed, right? Not just grocery stores with the essentials of life are like record stores, bookstores, shoe stores, you know, the most frivolous, innocuous crap. People were lining up to go touch and buy and feel and talk to people in the store. That's what they wanted. And online shopping sales have been declining. The stock of Shopify is, has been going down. The, you know, Amazon, their e-commerce business is is seeing its worst years um, pretty much since inception because of the the drastic predictions of of what they would do and what the reality bore out to be. And I think you're seeing it in all these other aspects, right? You know, Peloton bikes are gathering dust. I actually unplugged the one from my mother-in-law's cottage. Um, she bought it. She plugged it in. She used it once. Nine months later, I'm just like, I'm just going to, just going to like literally take this thing off life support. Um, so just for the electricity bill alone, 
and like maybe one day someone will plug it back in or sell it. Uh, you're seeing, what are you seeing in cities? You're seeing that the greatest benefit that happened to cities wasn't the emergence of, you know, smart cities and smart infrastructure. It was like, hey, you know, we can put patio tables and sidewalks and in parking spots and it'll make this place so much more vibrant, right? The analog things were what mattered. And I think you feel it right up to the sort of spiritual aspect of it. You know, I went to, I'm Jewish, as are you. I went to the first high holiday Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah service the other day at my synagogue in person. You know, people are still wearing masks and it was what it was meant to be, right? You know, I gave up on doing that crap online after the first time because it wasn't real. It didn't touch me. It didn't satisfy me. It didn't give me that sense of community. And so I think when we when I talk about the anal the future is analog, I'm not saying we're done with digital technology. What I'm saying is, you know, we had staked for decades the imagination of our future on this utopian perfect notion of digital technology coming and creating this perfect world, solving all the issues we had with school, with work, with community, with cities, with culture, with whatever. And that was our goal. That was our destination. But when we arrived at some early version of that destination, it wasn't that the technology was insufficient. It wasn't like, oh, you know, maybe if the resolution of this digital school was better for my, you know, seven year old daughter, it would work out better. Perhaps she would have gotten more out of it and learned more and been happier if her teacher had been displayed on a VR headset. No, it was that the inherent flaw in that and the inherent failure of it, the, the insufficiency of it was revealed so nakedly because we were all forced to undergo it, right? It was this forced, you know, A-B testing in the words of, of, of the digital industry, right? You know, it was, we A-B tested the digital future and for the most part, it failed. And the section of the uh, chapter on, on education to to be, you know, probably maybe it's because I've got young children, both the same age as yours and, and, you know, seeing it, but can, can you go into, I mean, everyone knows that the experience sucked, right? Um, it, it was never fun, uh, being stuck <laughs> in your house, like doing Google meets and all that kind of stuff, but never fun. Yes. It was like a repeated kick in the balls every day, all day for two years here in Canada. And, and we all. I mean, we all, most of us share that experience, but you got like, it, it is the perfect, I think, platform not to just say, um, the digital world is not our utopian future, but it's also the opportunity to like lean in a lot more to talk about why the analog world is not just, doesn't feel, just feel better, but it is in fact better. And I thought the, the, the discussion about what it means to be, to learn as opposed to be informed and you know, in that kind of distinction. So I'd love for you to go deeper into, you know, some of the, the science and data that we saw about the, the school experience as well. Well, the data was, was pretty universal, you know, around the world, according to reports from the OECD, which is an organization that tracks sort of the wealthiest, I don't know, two, three dozen countries in the world and has markers on many other nations as well. Um, that the experience with online learning, virtual learning, digital learning, whatever you want to call it was, pretty abysmal, um, you know, in terms of learning, information retention, sort of academic markers, grades, whatever, you know, 
maybe in the best case, it was sort of quasi even, maybe a little bit down. In most cases, it went down. And the worst part was that was very unequal. You know, in, in wealthy schools and wealthy neighborhoods where parents have time, one parent has time to sit at home, perhaps hire a babysitter or a nanny or an extra tutor, you know, the, the results may have been a little bit better, um, whether it were devices or so forth. But as you know, people's economic situation grew more precarious. Um, uh, you saw greater learning loss. You saw greater inequality showing up in the experience that people had. Um, you know, for a for a family in a poor country, for a you know under um, resourced family, a black family in you know Maryland, inner city Maryland, let's say, or a Latino family in in a poor neighborhood of Arizona. The learning loss was tremendous. The social loss was tremendous. The physical danger to kids was was serious. And so, you know, right there, you have the pricking of the bubble of, well, if everybody has access to this, it's going to be more equal. It's going to provide a greater equality because digital will give everyone an equal access, an equal platform. But equality was far more than just turning on a screen and having access to the same information lecture. And that showed the deeper meaning in education, and I think all these other spaces, analog spaces that we're talking about, that the information is not just the thing. And this is the main disconnect between the belief in a digital future and the sort of utopian ideal built around it and analog reality, right? Which is what we kind of crashed into in 2020. And that is, well, the information is what education is about, right? It's about knowing your ABCs and your one, two, threes from kindergarten all the way up to university, you know, and isn't it more efficient just to deliver that information through the most efficient platform possible, which is the internet, let's say, or, or computers or tablets or whatnot, um, or VR. But what we saw very quickly is what you know, education technology critic Larry Cuban, who is at Stanford and has been there for many years, and and I interviewed him for both books, you know, said is the reality of the core of what education is. Education is information that's translated into knowledge through relationships, real human relationships, the relationship that a teacher has with their students, the relationships that students have with each other, the relationships that students and the teachers and the school have with the parents and the surrounding community. And all of those relationships, the friendships, the rivalries, the mentorship, the authority that's bestowed in the way a classroom is set up, the, the romances, the shifting social dynamics of a place like high school, all of that merged with the information, the ABCs and one, two, threes, builds knowledge, human knowledge. And that is not a binary thing of like, I have shown you these one, two, threes and ABCs, and now you know them, therefore you are educated. The process of education is the process of learning of how to be a human in a society. And if anyone thinks that that is something you can teach people through a fucking platform like this or some other version of a flat screen with a little video box in it, they are insanely delusional. And I think that is, for me, one of the most – one of the reasons why my criticism of sort of the digital utopianism comes in hardest in the world of education. Because for 30, 40 years, there have been people in the ed tech business in Silicon Valley and elsewhere who are promising – this idealized future of education and achieving it through digital technology. And they have been consistently failing at it 
time and again, different devices, different platforms, right? You think of Sebastian Thurn and the great MOOC movement of a decade ago, the massive open online course. We are going to have university lectures for the best universities in the world and kids in Africa, Africa are going to be able to, you know, go to school in Harvard. And it's like, and here's the first one we're going to do at the University of, you know, California, San Jose and we're going to teach us. It's going to be great. And we're going to watch it. It's like 10% of people compete, complete the class, right? Like just a pathetic amount, like just fucking rounding error. And yet time and again, people are like, well, that didn't work, but here's, you know, here's another billion dollars. Go develop the next platform for VR. It's amazes me that in two industries or fields where objective data is supposed to be the guiding principle, education and science and technology, that blindness for education continues to happen. And that is a metaphor for so many of the other areas where we saw, you know, the failure of that digital future when it was pressed into reality. And so what, what is that lesson that education teaches us, which, you know, we can extrapolate out to all these other areas, culture, cities, work, you know, faith, um, conversation and friendships, for example, where again, it's like, we have a digital solution. This is the future of it. Oh, it didn't work. Why not? Because fundamentally, we as human beings are analog creatures, right? We are flesh and blood biological beings that, you know, look away from your screen, Ronan, look to your left, look to your right, look up, like literally look, look, get your eyes out the fucking screen. There you go. You're a physical creature in a world. You relate to that world at its best and most salient in a analog way through all your senses and a technology that is only going to engage a part of those senses, even with the best sensors and gloves or whatever the hell they're promising to make is always going to fall flat. Right. And now I will bring it back to the psychedelic experience. Why is the psychedelic experience so powerful? Whether we're talking about taking mushrooms on a canoe trip as some of us in this podcast may have done last week, or whether we are talking about, you know, the ketamine treatment that you do um, uh, and other treatments that are, you know, treating people with depression and, and PTSD and, and, you know, other um, psychological ailments that are, you know, some of the stickiest problems we have. It is because, you know, those substances are engaging the individuals and their brains and their bodies in the most visceral human physical way possible, right? When you go on a trip, whether it's, you know, through medical reasons or recreational, you are at your most present in the world. Your senses are lit up. Your cortexes are firing on all cylinders. Um, it, you are, you're at the most human you can be. You know, if I were to create some visual representation of that with CGI and show you it to a video. Wow, that looks cool. The trees on the lake look like paintings. That's amazing. But to actually experience something like that is a life-changing experience. And again, I, I, that's, that's what it comes down to, right? It's, it is, we are physical creatures as human beings who live in a physical world and our most important things in that world and the, the currency by which everything is built around are human relationships that are strongest when they are at their most physical. Think of your closest relationship as a human. It is people to whom you are the most physically close to, a lover or spouse or partner who you're fit, so physically close with, like you're sleeping in the same 
bed and, you know, sometimes without clothes and, you know, children, right? And friends who you hug and put your arm around and, and spend time with in close physical proximity, friends you've done road trips with or camping or, you know, travel with, or you're just hanging out a lot, right? It's that gets back to that idea of lunch. Like, what is the value of that lunch meeting? It's physical proximity. It's like, oh yeah, you know, Ronan, like we, we, we literally broke bread together. He took me to a place where I didn't have cutlery. What's with that guy? But that's, that's that genuine analog human experience. And so that is the thing that is been our past and our present. And we forget that it's the core of our future because we thought, well, once we could replace that with a virtual breaking of bread in the metaverse, then think how much time and money we'll save by not having to go break bread. It's insane. It's ridiculous. And yet we put so much of our faith and belief into that insane, ridiculous, childish notion. Pulling it back to, to psychedelics as well, which often invites exploring the ultimate questions, which is what is the purpose of it all? You know, it also begs the question of why, you know, the education that you get delivered through a MOOC or online. It's like, yeah, you get the data, but what is the purpose of education? And I believe fundamentally everything we should be doing or, uh, yeah, that we ought to be doing should be to enhance the human experience by nature, right? If, if we're not doing it for that reason, what, what reason are we doing it in the first place? And, and, and I think that's, uh, I'm guessing in, in some ways at, at, at the very, you know, macro level, that's the invitation that this book invites being like, what the hell are we doing? It's like, yes, there's ways that digital technology can complement and enhance the experience, but it, it can never be a replacement for. Exactly. And, and I think we would sort of like playing with those notions and they would be dismissed as, oh, well, well, this is the way of the future. You know, you, you don't want to be left behind. You know, this is the way things are going. But all of a sudden, when it was such a stark contrast that all we had was the diet of digital of what it could supply us for a good reason, right? We weren't allowed out of our houses for, you know, months at a time. Um, we very clearly saw the limits of that most human experience that we could not get the things we wanted, even from an innocuous activity such as going to the grocery store. You know, we couldn't get the things we wanted out of that online. We could get the bananas, we could get the chicken nuggets and the eggs and all those things. They'd be brought to our door. Really convenient. My God, that was easy. We saved a lot of time. Maybe we even saved some money. But we couldn't get all the other things that we didn't even realize we thought we wanted. You know, I was in a grocery store in Toronto last Monday, shopping for this canoe trip that I'd gone on with my friend Toby. And we were in the tea aisle looking at teas. And there was an old uh, woman, old Italian grandmother who was in this, it's an Italian grocery store called Fiesta Farms. And it, she was in this thing and she was asking us in kind of a, you know, her, her best English, like looking at different sleep time teas and saying, you know, will this work? Will this help me? And we're like, oh, well, yeah. My friend's like, yeah, this is a good sleep time to you. She's like, yeah, you know, my husband died recently and I haven't been able to sleep. And I just want something to like help me relax and go to sleep, right? That was nothing to do with a transaction for the best tea. She wasn't going to go on 
Amazon and read reviews of eight celestial seasoning sleepy time teas to find which one had the best chance of giving her a relaxing thing. That wasn't what she wanted. She was in that space in her community as a woman who was feeling broken and alone and vulnerable as a human being. And these two random idiots were there trying to talk to her about tea. And she wanted to tell them about the pain and hurt that she was going through as a human. And we had a very human moment where we, you know, patted her back and told her it would be okay and, you know, tried to pick the best tea for her. That's a moment that I don't think I'll ever forget. And that's such a human part of our world. I hope a part of our future that we didn't realize we were doing away with when we were just trying to put groceries online. And so I think this experience is something I hope we we can learn from, right? What's the whole point of doing A-B testing if you don't then take the information and learn from it? You know, it would be a waste if we then said, well, that didn't work, but let's charge forward and we're going to build, you know, a better exercise bike online. It's like, maybe that's not the solution. Maybe the solution is we have that, but, you know, we, we, we still want to make sure that we have enough bike lanes for kids to be able to go out and, and ride outside and learn what it's actually like or, or have gyms where people not only go to get exercise and spin their legs really fast on a bike, but like they meet friends, they feel better about themselves. They maybe meet romantic partners. They change their body image of themselves because they're out in the world and with this other group of people. You know, there, there's so much more to life than just the, the parts that we think we're looking at. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, it was beautiful. And I think uh, a good reminder uh, of, of why this is a really important conversation. Last week uh, on the way home, I was listening to a podcast, the the Lex Friedman podcast, Friedman Friedman, however you pronounce it. And they had Ray Kurzweil on the renowned futurist, Ray Kurzweil. The singular futurist, as we shall call. Yes. Uh, who was predicting that the singularity um, – will occur somewhere around 2029 is his prediction. <laughs> uh, I wish everybody could have seen that. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I think the reason this is a particularly important conversation is because in some ways what Ray Kurzweil is predicting, uh, I mean, maybe he's a prophet from the future, um, <laughs> feels like an inevitability, but, um, you just made a gesture with your hand uh, that I won't repeat for uh, censorship purposes, but um, who censors this? It's a podcast. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, there although, are literally Nazis making people. podcasts out there, Ronan. I made a tuggy tuggy motion with my hand when he mentioned the singular. All right, there we go. Thank you. Um, what inspired that response? You know, there is a blindness to the certainty of someone like Mr. Kurzweil, who's a brilliant inventor and thinker that past financial and technological success equals you know a unfailing vision of the future that he is a prophet right if you go to times square there are people standing there with signs talking about how the world will die or the lord will come back or the mashiach is returning in the next year repent 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 who have just a firm belief in their own messianic future as Ray Kurzweil or other, you know, techno futurists, um, singularity believers, techno utopians, whatever you want to call them, believing that our future is tied up and destiny is going to be dictated by the convergence of AI and VR and, you know, a couple of other, I don't know, acronyms. But again, all of that 
ignores the reality of the human experience and what humans actually want. Like, oh, you know, in five years, computers going to be so good to talk to that, you know, you're going to have a chatbot that's going to be able to emote and empathize with that poor woman in the grocery store. That woman doesn't want a fucking chatbot. That's not the future she wants. She wants people to talk to her. She wants someone to comfort her. That's what gives her meaning. That's what gives all of us meaning. And so this messianic dogmatic belief in digital technology as our salvation is is no different from any other sort of messianic dogmatic belief in some sort of future, whether it's, you know, heaven or hell, right? And I think for so long, while the world of business and the world of sort of mainstream culture has not really paid much credo, credence to the messianic pronunciations of religions, right? No one's saying, oh, we're, you know, we better, we better base our five-year forecast for um, this, you know, large CPG company on uh, the Mormon, you know, prophecy or the Aztec calendar or whatever. No one's doing that. Um, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I, I went to a conference and, and I saw Ray Kurzweil and he said that in, you know, six years, robots are going to be driving us, um, everywhere. So we're, we're going to abandon our, our human dri drivers on our, our transit program in the city. <laughs> and we're focusing entirely on robots. We're all in on robots. We're all in on AI. We're all in on VR. Like this is it. This is the future. It's a simplistic, childish notion. Will those technologies become better? Of course. Will they? you know, be able to do things that we never thought possible. Yes. Um, and open up, you know, new areas of opportunities for business, for culture, for creation, for whatnot, of course. But one is, you know, there's always unintended consequences. I think if you think back 15 years to the tremendous explosion of social media, you know, the, the, the golden age of Facebook and Twitter and and, 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 you know, that opening was like, these are the tools that are going to take democracy around the world and spread peace and love and kumbaya. And it's like, oh, another genocide created by, you know, that was organized on Facebook. Sorry, not really our fault. Oh, sorry. Like, sorry that democracy's dead in America, but you know, hey, discord, like, it's cool. It's kind of cool. Um, so one's the law of unintended consequences. These these same things have the potential for for you know that the, you put so much belief in positively. You know we we don't talk about their potential for disruption. I don't mean Terminator style, you know, enslavement by robots. I just mean like the erosion of the things that make us human. Um, and the other thing is again getting back to that desire. It's like with the exception of a small group of people who spend a lot of their time thinking and talking about this, going to these conferences and. Speaking in the same coded world, I mean, you were in the world of tech, Renan. You know the the circular back room, you know, echo chamber that it is. Um, when you get out into the real world and talk to your relatives and your friends and your kids, and and you see what actually goes on in life, and you value what you know what matters to you, it's divorced from the reality of what people want. Ray Kurzweil believes the singularities are future, but. Ask any other person you meet on the street whether that's something they even desire if it was possible. One final question. 
mushroom enhanced canoe trip that you took this past weekend. Uh, any great insights that came out of that other than appreciating, I'm sure a wonderful, well, it may have been raining actually given the weather in, in Ontario the last couple of weeks, but, uh, any other great insights that came out of appreciate other than appreciating, uh, the wonderful nature that we have around here? Um, I think it's the value and the deepening of the relationships that happened over the past two years. You know, this was with a, a group of friends who were in my book club. We became much closer over the pandemic, especially when, you know, it was really one of the only social interactions we had. We did one virtual club. It was terrible. Um, and so we met in person in people's backyards, a distance and blah, blah, blah. We had like dinner parties and snowstorms. And I think the thing that I realized on the trip with these friends and this was kind of like something we've been talking about for a year was, you know, the the most important thing that came out of the pandemic was not the familiarity we had with the new technologies, learning how to Zoom and learning how to do these things. It was like, it was realizing the value of the human relationships that we were deprived of, right? The relationships with friends and family who we weren't able to see or have dinners with or, you know, kids sleep over at their grandparents' house for periods of time the relationships that you would have with your kids would have with their teachers, which was, you know, a fraction of what it needed to be when it was online. The relationships you would have as an audience member to a musician that you were going to go see live, which was just cut off when you were watching that on a screen. Um, the relationships that you had to your community and your city, you know, the the thing that became most important to all of us were those relationships to neighbors, to friends, to whoever you saw on the street, even when you were wearing masks, right? That's what mattered. And that's what still matters. And that's what matters more. And that's what we have to build the future around, not whatever technology comes out and allows us to do something and someone else to make money off it. I think if we can focus the way we think about the future on those relationships, those human relationships, the ones that happen at their best and their most when you're all together face to face huddled under a tarp trying to you know cook in a windstorm while the mushrooms are wearing off um <laughs> then the future is bright and with that um if people want to pick up a copy of The Future's Analog or learn more about uh, the various books that we've touched on today of uh, of your penmanship uh where can they find more information bookstores libraries, the barely updated website I have, um, saxdavid.com, I think. I don't know. The occasional dumb thing I post on Twitter, which is less and less these days. I actually have a timer on my computer that limits me to 15 minutes of social media each day, which is just enough time to go on, check messages, respond to them, maybe post one dumb thing, and then be kicked off and have to fend for my brain in the rest of the world, which gives me lots of time to go for lunch. Excellent. David, thanks so much, man. I, I've uh, done a lot of podcasts now. I think we're close to 70 episodes and, and this is probably the one where I um, enjoy just sitting back and listening the most. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Thank you for your, your, your support and your interest and, um, you know, for uh, deleting my Ray Kurzweil jerky jerky motion from... Uh... <laughs> I'm happy to leave it in there. You'd Please. be surprised at how many angry people get. Uh. You know, I, I got people like lashing out at us because I let uh, Luke story, you know, share one of his, 
beliefs that uh, Anthony Fauci is is the devil, and apparently it's not okay to give people a platform to at least share their beliefs. So um, now you're off Spotify. Now Joni Mitchell cancels YouTube. Exactly. Anyway, I really appreciate it. Let's uh, let's do lunch. Let's do lunch. That sounds great. As a quick reminder, please follow rate and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producer is Macy Baker. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Lauren for joining us today. To learn more about her work, visit embodiedlife.com. That's I-N-B-O-D-I-E-D-L-I-F-E dot com.